Is the word sufficient for you? And now for Pagan Christianity. Welcome to Brothers of the Word, because brother and sister, you need the word. So this morning, I decided to tackle the subject of the sermon that came to my mind the night prior. And it had to do with something that was sort of convicting to me in the previous days. And those were paganistic practices common in Christianity. Now, for the sermon topic, it was to tackle two to three of these. And two of them came to my mind clearly, and the third one was there in the morning. Now, the first one of these was believing there's multiple ways to heaven. Now, I don't think anybody here necessarily abides by that worldview, but in some cases and new age philosophies or various forms of mysticism, which can really be anything, they claim to be Christians, yet also hold the worldview that there's multiple ways to heaven. Now, in modern times, this is pushed by some pretty big figures. You have Oprah, you have Steve Harvey with the One World Church And he gives the analogy that just like television, there's several channels, but any of them can keep you entertained. This isn't quite applicable to religion. I mean, for starters, with the religions that are used claiming there's multiple ways to heaven, they don't agree with that. The claim there contradicts with the religions themselves that they're trying to use, such as Islam and Allah being the way, such as Christianity and Christ being the only way. There's religions that don't even believe in heaven, but reincarnation or that this is all that is. There's several contradictions in there. And then diving further, it brings a couple questions and more worries. I mean, one, you can't prove it. But I mean, to be fair, that's present in most worldviews. They can't be proven. But taking that a step further, look at the authority that's giving them. This very authority is trying to take supposedly theistic religions, taking things that are backed by what people genuinely believe to have been a god, and then as a man trying to claim against it, distorting it, and trying to say that it is true. There's various worrying things there. And I mean, even the Bible, of course, tells us differently. Because that's the religion we believe in, that's what I'm going to use today. And just to emphasize the importance, we get one life. We get one death. We get one choice at what we believe to be the truth for what happens in the afterlife and how we live to influence that. (laughs) You could choose for man. You could choose for God. But let me tell you what the Bible says. And truthsavers.org painted this beautifully in a narrative of scripture. They started with Luke 13, 22 through 24. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter, but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. That was the first. Then he goes on to say that Jesus also says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Earlier in John 8, 24, Jesus had told a Jewish religious sect, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Peter states in Acts 4, 12, Neither is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus said, 
In John 3, 17 through 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's a big difference there between one world religion, Christianity, and many others. I don't know if anybody under the sound of my voice even abides by that worldview. But I mean, you can ask that question. You know, there's only one life, one death, and one choice. Are you confident in what a man states against backed, credible, theistic religion that has stood for millennia, that has had hundreds of prophecies that have come to pass, that was written by over dozens of authors, and yet there's a consistent narrative among them across centuries of writing. Or what a man is trying to push for acceptance and universal community, to an extent at least, says, your choice. And on to the second one, emotions being used as an indicator of God's will. This is one of the more recent ones that has hit me. And have you ever had a big decision that you decided to make because you felt at peace with it? You felt good. You felt confident. You just felt calm that this was it. And then another question. Have you ever faced trial and tribulation that God had allowed and it was real uncomfortable? It was real painful. Shoot, it may have dang near killed you. It may have brought you to your very end. Yet it was within God's will. One could ask, how could the two of those go together if, you know, good emotions are indicators of God's goodwill? The answer, it's not. See, as we are told, we're told not to lean on our emotions. We're told the heart is evil, truly deceitful. Let me tell you, Jeremiah 17 verses 5 through 11 states, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes his flesh his strength and turns his heart from the Lord. He will be like a shrub in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He is like a tree planted by the waters that sends out its roots towards the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes and its leaves are always green. It does not worry in a year of drought, nor does it cease to produce fruit. And here it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his way by what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge hatching eggs it did not lay is the man who makes a fortune unjustly. In the middle of his days, his riches will desert him. And in the end, he will be the fool. So the heart's truly deceitful, but don't get me wrong. There's peace in the Lord when you're in his will and when you're seeking it wholeheartedly. But see, that's different than determining God's will, what God wants you to do by your emotions. It's more of an after effect. When you're in the will of God, here comes the peace. You don't necessarily search for the peace for the will of God. Do you see the difference here? Following God's will or following peace to God's will. That was number two. And there was also an interesting thing. I was listening to a sermon yesterday, and I didn't take note of this, so I'm not sure this is exactly what the sermon was, but I'm pretty sure it was Vody Balkum Jr., Children of Caesar, Part 2. And he talked about how in ancient Greece, they believed in Cupid, and they believed in it to an extreme extent. Now, by this, I mean you could have married people, married for a year, decades, maybe just got married, And if they experienced infatuation with another person, they would hastily break up with that marriage to go seek and pursue this other person. If they had their heart taken by another person, they would cheat. Why? Because Cupid shot me with an arrow. 
And I mean, to apply this to modern day, imagine you're with your hubby. Y'all are having an argument. He gets mad. He storms out. He's thinking less of you and more of everybody on the street. He sees somebody who meets his eye and he likes it. So he decides he's going to text you. Hey, I, I think we're done. Cupid shot me with the arrow. I'll be over at three to get my stuff. Peace. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. But that's how it was back then. And that's an extreme instance of following one's heart where you could throw everything away just because it feels right. More examples, because this isn't only applicable to romance, but even things such as, say, fighting in high school. There's a person you don't like. They made you mad. They want to fight you, too. So you do. You could get expelled. You could get extremely injured. They may have a weapon. There may be multiple people where you get hurt. Now you got broken legs or something. You're in the hospital for months. They recorded the video. Now your dignity's lost. There's so much that can be taken when looking at emotion alone. And while those are extreme, just doing it casually has constant effects. One of the biggest drawbacks is, as John Piper calls it, they produce idolatry factories. This is because whenever you're looking at emotions and moments to see what you're going to do in every moment, well, faith can become distorted. Relationship with God can become ruined. See, if you have, say, dedicated time for prayer or worship to God, and leading up to that time, you're enjoying some entertainment, say Netflix, or you have some work that you have to catch up on, or some friends invited you to a non-important event. Leading by the heart, you may say, I can do that later, every time. You never end up picking up the word. You never end up in prayer because there's always something else tugging on your heartstrings. And then making this even worse is that if an individual goes in the word and they're led by emotions, the reason why I say this is because what can happen is that they'll go to the word with the expectation of finding something and they won't leave until they find that thing. The pursuit is not objective truth, but what they believe to be their subjective truth. And here you find distortion of the word where people take a verse and they turn it into something completely different. Because, I mean, the Bible is not even a book of verses initially. The verses were added for organization. The Bible is a whole cohesive story. And at the very least, you could take the passage. But that's not quite what happens if one is led by emotion. And that distortion of text becomes a distortion of faith. They pursue a God that doesn't really exist because what they think they're following is just what they made in their mind and in their heart. And then they may think, I'm living in God's will. But the God they're following was just one they made in the image of their own self. Now, this is something that's really easy to fall into because it feels right. That heart is truly deceptive. It feels right. And if it feels right, how can it be so wrong? But how I just told you, this is also a primary issue. Because if you feel in your heart that there's multiple ways to heaven, then you see just how easily it can spiral out of eternal control. All I'm saying is that the word should be the indicator for your life. Go off of what the word tells you. Of course, you have to know the word to do that. Dive in the word. As I do for the first 10 minutes that I wake up or 10 minutes before I go to sleep, I'll read a passage. Usually in the night on the Bible app, I'll look at the Bible verse of the day. I'll click on it and I'll read that whole chapter. And then in the morning, if I haven't finished analyzing it, I'll finish there or I'll start somewhere else in the scripture. Usually the next passage after that is something that's simple to do. And you may not like King James Version. It may be too complicated, difficult to understand. Old English, I understand that. So find a reputable source, one that's scholarly checked and it's comprehensible, such as NIV, NLT, or ESV. I usually use one of these three, most commonly NLT. And the third thing, this was the one that hit me the hardest because when I first heard it, I just didn't even know what to say. It stumped me. And it's the notorious God told me. <laughs> it's something that's used by a lot of people. 
And there's a lot of potential deception there, and it doesn't even have to be by the enemy. It could be by self. I think of the story that my dad has mentioned a couple times. I think he was single or he was married to my mother, and there was a woman that came up to him and told him that God told me that we're supposed to be married. It reminds me of various Christian videos or forums that I've looked at, and it's more common for women of men that were seemingly of no earthly good coming and telling them, God told me that we're supposed to be married. It's such a common thing said and pushed. People will push a narrative that they want. This can again tie back into emotions and try and say that God told me this or God told me that about you. And there's a couple qualms generally that I would have with people that say, God told me this or that. And the first one is if it's not aligning with scripture. Primarily because we know God said that, but we don't know about you. (laughs) That's one thing consistent among everything that somebody says, God told me this or that. We have no way to prove that to be true unless, say, it was a prophecy and it came to pass. Even then, some prophecies are very basic. Say you have an individual that's financially savvy. They're making an increased income. They have an old, broken-down car. You see that and you tell them, you know, God's telling me in the next year or two, you're going to get a new car. Some things are kind of assumative like that, but generally. And progressing forward, there's not only people that claim to hear the voice of God, but there's also something, and this one was the one that applied to me the most. And it was a pagan practice, and it was those who look to the world, to situation, coincidental encounters, to try and gauge God's goodwill in the world. Now, whenever I first heard this, the response after was, that's paganism. By Vody Barkham, let me see if I can find exactly where he said it here. He pointed out, and I quote, It is absolutely the most common approach to finding, discerning, and following God's will among Christians. But it's like reading tea leaves. It's like looking to the stars to determine the way that God is moving. It's like horoscope reading. I'm talking about when something coincidental happens in your life, right? Say you heard a sermon. This was the example that he had given. And it was about an individual The sermon pastor was talking about missionary work. How can you justify not going out there internationally and preaching and sharing the good word to these people? And then the lady in her lives to come started to notice various little signs, such as a newspaper with a cutout of this international ministry, such as another person in her husband's work that had apparently quit to go pursue this international ministry. And the most interesting thing about it was these weren't unique things. These were the type of things that she would see at least weekly, but... Because she was looking for these signs, things that previously happened non-uniquely, she interpreted as the unique will of God so clearly. And commonly, if an individual heard that story, excluding the last part about it being a common thing weekly, they would think, that's a great thing. God moving so clearly and specifically in the world. And I mean, don't get me wrong, you can see God moving in the world. It's just instances like that where we use that solely is whenever we can get lost. It becomes less about God said this and God showed me this. And it was just life going on and you were looking for something. Similarly to how somebody can distort scripture. They can distort experiences to make it fit a narrative. I mean, we see it commonly on the news. We see half stories. We see half truths. And if you don't see the full picture, you even think it's true and it's what really happened. It's common. And it all ties back to the word at the source, at the core of what should I do? Get in the word. Use it as a pillar to the actions that we take, to the faith that we build, to the worldview that we establish. Simply put, there's a question that was asked. Well, actually, it wasn't even a question. It was a statement. But I'm going to turn it into a question. And that is, is the word sufficient for you? Is God's word, the Bible, sufficient for you? 
Because whenever we go outside of the Bible, then we start to walk into very dangerous territories. We've got New Age philosophy. They sound kind of biblical, but they're not quite there. We've got mysticism, which quite literally has no bounds. You step into it and you may never step back out. It's dangerous territory whenever the Bible is not your foundation to looking at the world. It's dangerous territory every day because it's so easy to let our hearts lead us. Instead of what we've read and learned from the word, instead of the prayers that we've built up, instead of the faith and a strong foundation, it's real easy to get knocked off. I mean, the pathway to righteousness and salvation is already narrow, and it's going to be even more difficult to walk on it or even find it if you're not looking and consistently being in the right place. There was also some scripture that I wanted to talk about for the whole looking at the world to determine God's will as paganism. And it's Romans 12 too. And it states, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Going forward to help understand that was a commentary from connectus.org. They stated that the pattern of this world belongs to Satan, and it has been ever since Adam fell to temptation. Because of this, we're born into sin. And so we sin along with the rest of the world. The world or the dominion of darkness has particular ways and goes round by certain means. Every Christian, though, who is saved is saved out of that dominion, that pattern, that way of thinking and doing things. As followers of Jesus, we are taught that everything is exactly the opposite of what we once thought. Our renewed spirit is totally different and agrees with the ways of heaven, but our flesh is not yet renewed. Therefore, it has embedded within its old habits that run according to the elementary principles of the world. In order for our old flesh to fall into line with our new spirit and the Holy Spirit within us, our minds must be transformed by renewal. Only then will God's ways, higher than our own as Isaiah 55, 9 states, truly begin to look as lovely as they are. The mind is renewed by intention and feeding it the truth. The objective truth, the word, not the subjective truth, going to the word with an idea in mind and not leaving until you prove it. And they proceeded to dissect each portion of this. So the pattern of the world belongs to Satan. Don't conform to it. Simply put, we know it belongs to Satan. Why realistically would we want to be in line with that? Two, as the commentary within state, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this could be summarized as important with one sentence. If your mind changes, you will change. When your thoughts change, your actions change. When your actions change, other people take notice of it and their minds are changed too. And it's a, a repeat loop. Beautiful thing. Continuing. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And they went on to say, just as the spirit of a man knows the man. The spirit of God is the only one to truly know God. And they justified this with 1 Corinthians 2.11. And lastly, this applies to new and even some aged Christians. They'll see God's will as good, just not pleasing. And the question that can be asked then is, did you follow it consistently? The reason why I say this is because it's a transformative process. Process. It's not an overnight transformation, but it's something that you do intentionally, consistently, and then you find it. It's like following God's will, and then you end up at peace. It's, it's not a leap. It's a process, a path, a tough one, I'll admit, but a worthwhile one. For abiding and seeking his will will begin to change you, to love all the ways of God, and find them increasingly pleasing. I do want to say that I do believe that God still speaks today. It's just that he speaks through his word primarily. 
For it's a timeless text that though it was written by then, has helped Christians since then. Timeless text. No matter when a Christian is, they can go to that word as a solid foundation for their faith and life. God will guide and lead. Seek him objectively and not subjectively. Turn away from the grips of your heart and seek God to guide you. Hmm. There's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus. This is my sermon for today. And I didn't really have a name for it, but what I had typed in for the title of the document was just Pagan Christianity, which sounds pretty extreme, I'll admit, but I suppose that's the title of the sermon for today. Y'all have excellent weeks. Thank you. You are listening to BrothersOfTheWord.com. This was the message titled Pagan Christianity by George Bronner. This message is number 4103, that's 4103, to listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4103 to a friend. Go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to iwanttogive.com. That's iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because, brother, you need the word. Brothers of the Word.